Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, episode 69, When the Saints Go Marching In. Today I'm joined by Mike Lacona. Um, we're going to be talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and about the recent controversy that's been surrounding him. Um, and, and that sort of leads me into the first of a couple things that I want to say in my monologue today. Um, uh, preparation for my debate is going well. As some of you know, I'll, I am going to be defending uh, annihilationism um, in a debate in less than two weeks from now, uh, December 20th. Um, you know, as I'm doing the preparation, I'm becoming more and more convinced um, every single day of its truthfulness. <clears throat> Uh, I mentioned on Facebook the other day that I had an epiphany that has sort of um, got taken care of what remaining doubt I, I might have had. Um, and so I hope that you will uh, uh, stay tuned for that debate and listen with an open mind. Um, and, you know, as you'll find out in the course of this interview, it's important that we be careful about what we consider to be the essentials of the faith. I don't want to give too much of the interview away. I also don't want to give the impression that Mike Lacona uh, sh shares this position of annihilationism th that I'm leading toward right now. Um, but I bring it up just to say that, um, you know, I really respect the work of, of people like Greg Kokel, who has said on the air that uh, while this may be an unorthodox view, it's it's definitely not heretical. Um, and I hope that you'll keep that in mind and, and that you'll listen to, the, to my debate with an open mind um, and ask yourself if you, if you can understand why somebody like me who is as committed to the uh, inerrancy of scripture as I am um, and its sole authority or its uh, supreme authority why it is that somebody like myself would lean so heavily toward this view um, and if in the end you don't agree with me fine but I hope that you'll consider the importance of having a proper definition of what's essential to the faith and what's not and as you'll see in the course of this interview, that's going to come up. If you have any thoughts that you want to share with me about annihilationism before the before the debate, please don't hesitate to email me at theapologetics uh, the at hotmail.com. Um, I'd be happy to share my responses with you, and um, you know that'll help me further prepare for my debate and, and give me a chance to cancel the debate if one of you guys emails me with a point I hadn't considered before that convinces me that I've been wrong. Um, in any case, that was the first thing that I wanted to say. The second thing that I wanted to say was just that um, please keep me in your prayers. My family and I are going to be leaving in a few days uh, for sunny California, um, and uh, we're going to be going to Disneyland for a week. It's it's going to be an exciting time. But actually, what what's not uh, as exciting to me as Dis or what's more exciting to me than the idea of spending the week at Disneyland is that my birthday is on Tuesday, December 13th, and I'm going to have an opportunity to spend that evening of my birthday at one of my favorite restaurants, uh, one which is featured in one of my favorite movies. And I'm going to play a clip from that movie, uh, and I just ask you not to judge me uh, when I say that this is my favorite restaurant and one of my favorite movies. Listen to this clip. Ben? Oh, thanks. Uh, look, look, I have to tell you, uh, uh, this is kind of difficult. Hold on, not. Showtime. Welcome to a magnificent journey into the past. This is medieval times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you prepared for a night of feasting and sport the likes of which you will never forget? Yes! I charge 
to stand up and cheer for your section's night. Let the games begin! The blue light rules! The red knight sucks the big one! You're going down, red knight! Going down, down, down! Red knight going down! Down, down, down! Red knight going down! Am I going to knife and fork? There were no utensils in medieval times, hence there are no utensils at medieval times. Would you like a refill on that Pepsi? There were no utensils, but there was Pepsi? Dude, got a lot of tables. That's right, on my birthday I'll be spending at uh, Medieval Times, my favorite restaurant, and yeah, I know that's pretty silly, but uh, it's uh, a really exciting place to go. And, and yes, The Cable Guy, uh, featuring Jim Carrey, is one of my favorite movies of all time. My wife and I quote it often, so you can tell how immature and childish I apparently am. <laughs> but in any case, like I said, please keep us uh, in your prayers so that we would have a safe travel um, and, and a great time, a great relaxing time, a break away from work and from uh, even... <clears throat> all the uh, the podcast work and stuff like that. It's it's going to be an enjoyable, relaxing time. And then I'm going to be back two days before my debate, and so I won't have much time to uh, to prepare. Um, well, really, after uh, a few days from now. So, in any case, uh, let's go ahead and play today's promo for um, Jim Wallace's uh, "Please Convince Me" podcast. Well, how about to get going? Your show's almost on. Get ready to jump into the jury box. It's time for the Please Convince Me podcast. The only apologetics podcast hosted by a cold case homicide detective. It's time for some clear thinking Christianity as we explore an evidential faith in Jesus Christ together. Here's the host of the Please Convince Me podcast, Jay Warner Wallace. If what I think is happening is happening... It better not be. Please convince me with Jim Wallace is an excellent show, and Jim is, is an excellent guy. I really appreciate his uh, approach. I, I'm not entirely on board with the evidential approach to apologetics over and above presuppositional apologetics, but in terms of his use of the evidence, I think that it's great, his, his approach of... Um, uh, uh, which comes from his background as a cold case homicide detective is really powerful, I think, in defending the Christian faith. Uh, so I definitely recommend that you check his show out. Um, you can find it by searching for Please Convince Me in iTunes or the Zoom Marketplace or by going to pleaseconvinceme.com. Um, and he's also got a sister site, Answers for Atheists, geared specifically toward atheists seeking answers to their objections to Christianity. So definitely check those resources out. Um, and uh, with that, let's go ahead and move right into today's interview with Mike Lacona. I'm joined today by my guest, Dr. Mike Lacona, formerly research professor at Southern Evangelical Seminary and apologetics coordinator at the North American Mission Board, an author, co-author, and editor of several books, including his most recent book, The Resurrection of Jesus, A New Historiographical Approach. Mike joins me today to discuss the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus and the recent controversy in which his commitment to the inerrancy of the Bible has been called into question. Thanks so much for joining me today, Mike. Oh, my pleasure, Chris. Glad to be with you. 
Now, I like to begin a lot of my interviews asking my guests about their testimony of coming to Christ, but um, you know, I happen to know just a little bit about your story, and I think that uh, having been raised in a Christian home, it's actually your story later in life, which might be a little bit more interesting to my listeners. Uh, as your bio puts it at your website, you almost jettisoned your faith. Can you tell us about that? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think we all have our our idiosyncrasies, and one of mine is that I'm a second guesser. I second guess everything. Um, so I, I didn't realize this until just uh, maybe two years ago, three years ago, something like that. But um, uh, I had frequently questioned my Christian faith, uh, the truth of the Christian faith. But then I recognized a little later I, I question everything. I mean, I, I can't purchase a simple product without having second <laughs> guesses about that. It's really uh, it's it's crazy. It's uh it's annoying to me. It's annoying to my wife, <laughs> yeah. but uh, that's just the way I am. So, you know, it, I, I was questioning my Christian faith, whether it was true. I did this on multiple occasions. And, um, uh, you know, I, I'm not going to say that I'll never question it again. I probably will. That's just uh, the way I'm wired. Well, so how is it that you came to question your faith and, and how did you get through that, uh, you know, with your faith intact on the other side? Well, um, I'd say two things. There are there were two components to my faith. One was an emotional doubt, and the other was an intellectual doubt. The intellectual doubt has been resolved through the really good evidence that there is for the truth of Christianity, um, existential evidence uh, through things like um, answered prayer, um, uh, experiencing of the paranormal, uh, what I would think would be the paranormal. It's uh, just some kind of interesting, some kind of scary things. Um, and then also the intellectual data, things such as uh, the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. Um, uh, those things have really helped my faith tremendously. Uh, when it comes to emotional doubt, this is something that Gary Habermas has dealt a lot with. In fact, he wrote a book called The Thomas Factor, which is now out of print and can be downloaded and read for free at his website, GaryHabermas.com. And I think I've come to recognize that um, most of my doubts over time have been uh, more emotional rather than intellectual because the evidence is there. But the second guessing says, um, well, what if, what if this, what if this? And um, yes, there may be a one in a billion chance of that what if being true, but the the, the ramifications of that, the consequences of being wrong on something like this are so great, so it can really bother me. But, I mean, gosh, if you're looking at a one in a billion chance or something like that, and I'm not using real numbers there. Sure. Um, but if you're looking at something like that, do you really have reason to get all anxious and twisted and um, wondering, uh, you know, putting your life into a downspin because you're doubting the truth of something because it has a one in a billion chance of being false? Um, so, no, that's intellect. That, that's emotional doubt, and that's something I've you know, still struggle with at times, but uh, through Gary, I've, I've learned how to, um, to work through that. Sure. Yeah, that's really good. Now, your work has largely been focused on, uh, as you already mentioned, the resurrection of Jesus. I, I count something like nine public debates that you've done. Uh, your most recent book that we're going to be talking about uh, was on this topic. You've also written Paul Meets Muhammad, The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus, which you co-authored with Gary Habermas, Cross-Examined, which is a legal novel defending the historicity of Jesus' resurrection. Uh, what initially spurred your interest in this very specific and yet very important subject? Well, I think uh, I, I've had 17 public debates now, and I think oh, wow. uh, all all but probably two of them have been on the resurrection. Oh, no, I guess three or four. So um, that, 
maybe 13 or 14 of them. Um, but what prompted me in the subject was, um, I, it was Gary Habermas, to be honest with you. It, uh, I was, when I first became exposed to apologetics, it was the scientific stuff, the intelligent design, the stuff from astrophysics and molecular biology, but especially the astrophysics. That, I just have always been fascinated with space. I wanted to be an astronaut when I grew up. I was growing up, I'm 50 years old. I turned 50 this year. So I grew up during the Apollo time. And wow, it was just so cool. And I thought being an astronaut would be so neat. So I really took to the scientific stuff. Mm. Um, but it, later on, you know, it was Gary talking about the resurrection and recognizing that, hey, the science stuff is fascinating. It's really cool. Um, and it, it does seem to strongly suggest that there is an intelligent designer of the universe and life itself. But even with that, you just get a generic God, a general theism um, that's compatible with Christianity but it's also compatible with Islam, it's compatible with Judaism, it's compatible with a John Walton sort of theism. Um, but the resurrection of Jesus uh, gives you God and the truth of Christianity. And I just thought that was really neat. And the more I got into the resurrection, and there were less people at the time dealing with it, probably still less uh, dealing with it uh, on a public basis. But the more I got into it, the more interested I got in the historical aspect and Eventually, that led me to looking at it as I did in my doctoral work, and it's just become, uh, I mean, that's how I got into it, but now the historical stuff has become just really interested, something I'm really passionate about. Sure. Now, in 1997, you formed a ministry now called Risen Jesus Ministries. What's your vision and mission at Risen Jesus? Well, it's pretty simple, Chris. It's to equip 100,000 Christians to share their faith and defend the truth of Christianity using the historical case for the resurrection of Jesus and for me to champion that case publicly through debate. I see. And, and I'm going to ask you at the end of the interview to, to give a link to that because I think that my listeners would check it out. I, I just recently watched a video of endorsements from people like William Lynn Craig and uh, um, uh, Frank Turek and some other people that I just think was phenomenal, and I hope that my listeners will go check that out. But like I said, I'll ask for that link at the end. Now, a little over a year ago, if I'm correct in my chronology here, you published The Resurrection of Jesus, A New Historiographical Approach. And I want to talk just a little bit about that before we jump into the controversy that's going on right now. Um, in the book, you talk about something which has historically, and that pun is intended, uh, been, ser <laughs> been seriously lacking in Christian education. Can you tell us about that? Well, um, it's not only lacking in Christian education, it's it's lacking in secular education as, as well. Um, one of the first things I did uh, when investigating this was to uh, look at the course catalogs for the eight Ivy League schools uh, for their undergraduate, graduate, and doctoral level courses and uh, for both the departments of religion and philosophy. And I, I wanted to see how many actual, how many courses were actually offered in terms of the topic of the philosophy of history and historical method. And when I looked at all of these, looked over the course of a year in their course catalog and added them all up between the eight Ivy League schools for undergraduate, graduate, and doctoral level courses, seminars with, within these schools, uh, departments of religion, department of philosophy, and the total came to one. Mm. So there was one doctoral seminar that was offered at Princeton on the philosophy of history. And other than that, no other school offered this, at least, you know, with the Ivy League schools. And a lot of uh, graduates of these schools will get out with master's and, and doctoral degrees and claim to be historians of Jesus without the first class on how to do history. 
And it's the same thing within our uh, seminaries and most universities throughout the United States or North America. We're just not teaching this um, the philosophy of history and historical method. So you've got all these these graduates getting out, talking about the historical Jesus. And they're like uh, blind people stumbling through a minefield. They, they just don't <laughs> know what they're doing. And this is um, it, it becomes really interesting because in the field of um, uh historical Jesus research, you'll have certain scholars that are now proposing things that have to do with uh, postmodernist approaches to history. And they're speaking of these approaches as though they are groundbreaking. Mm. What they don't realize is that our colleagues within the discipline of history, um, histor- that is historians who practice outside the community of biblical scholars, they've been debating uh, postmodernism versus realism for decades. And pretty much by the time we came to the end of the 20th century, even postmodernists like uh, Keith Jenkins, a leading light amongst the postmodernist movement, was admitting that um, pretty much that they had lost, that realists had won the day, that um, pretty much uh, historians were realists and practiced history as they always have, um, saying that we can know the past with a, a varied degrees of historical certainty. So while these debates have been going on uh, in the practice of history, uh, biblical scholars who don't read outside their own discipline think that they are making groundbreaking uh, research by now starting to propose postmodernism. Mm. So what they don't realize, I just want to say to these guys, hey, hey guys, the party's over and you missed it. <laughs> you know, let's go back and read some of the debates that are taking place so you don't have to waste time. Uh, rehashing an issue that has already been thoroughly discussed by professionals in this field who have far more training on this than biblical scholars do, who basically get no training on this for the most part. So right. that's uh, that's where I think we we can do it, and that's what I've I have done now. At um, I have taught some courses and even a doctoral seminar on the philosophy of history. Uh, I think this has been very helpful. In fact, I'll just tell you one student who did his master's degree at a secular university in North Carolina in history said that he learned more in eight hours in my class on the philosophy of history than he did in his entire bachelor's and master's education in it. Wow. So it was pretty neat. Yeah, I bet. So uh, you, you will go on in the book to talk about how these uh, principles and methods of doing history that have been so neglected in both secular and Christian education um, can, can help us to even investigate uh, and determine the historicity of something like uh, a miracle account, uh, like the resurrection. Is that right? Yeah, I, I think we can. By uh, I, I don't think that there uh, are good reasons for prohibiting historians for investigating miracle claims. Many of these have been proposed all the way back from David Hume to Bart Ehrman at present, and I interact with these reasons within the book. Now, I do think that when we're talking miracle claims, we do have to be careful, mm. but I, I don't see any reasons for rejecting or, or keeping a historian for, from rejecting a report of a miracle uh, simply because of its supernatural nature. And again, I deal with this in the book. Sure. Well, and, and your book is enormous. Uh, and if there are any listeners who, like me, I'm ashamed to say, have not gotten their hands on it, I don't want you to give everything away. Um, and of course, I want to move on to talk about the controversy that's going on. But, but if possible, could you briefly summarize some of the various ways in which you found that an historiographical approach to the resurrection of Jesus supports its historicity? Yeah, um, you know, just to summarize the book uh, in chapter, there's five chapters in <laughs> for a more than 700 page book, but in five, <laughs> chapter one, um, 
I discussed the philosophy of history and historical method. How, uh, can we know the past? How do we come to know the past? To what extent do we know the past? Um, chapter two, I, I have a, a full discussion on historians and miracles. Can historians investigate miracle claims? Um, are there any precautions that we need to take in these kinds of investigations? Third, uh, chapter three, um, I deal with the pool of sources that historians are going to uh, take from. Like, um, you know, we're going to look at the Gospels, we're going to look at Paul, we're going to look at the New Testament literature, we're going to look at the Gnostic literature, the Apostolic Fathers, secular sources of the period, things like this. We're going to assess these for um, how uh, good the testimony, how reliable uh, the testimony is that they're reporting pertaining to the fate of Jesus. In the case of the Christian writings, whether they're, we call them Gnostic or um, the Apostolic Fathers or whatever, you know, particular set of literature we're looking at that would claim to be Christian, at least we'd say, um, how likely is it that the particular ports pertaining to Jesus' fate, his crucifixion and what may have happened afterward, how likely it is, is it that these reports go back to the original Jerusalem apostles? And uh, so I look at these and, and then we, we identify what we think are the best sources for the historian. Now, again, uh, uh, I, I'm not appro- I'm appro- I am approaching this as a historian and trying to do my best to shelve my own biases, which is something that plagues every historian, no matter who you are sure. and what your worldview is. So in doing so, I'm not going to approach the text uh, with any consideration to its divine quality. Do I believe that the Bible is inspired? Yes. Do I believe that it's inerrant? Yes. Um, but can I uh, presuppose that in a historical investigation, if I'm going to do one in integrity? Absolutely not. Um, and so I have to be open to legend embellishments and errors. Do I think that these things exist in there? No. Uh, but I have to be open to them. And I, I, I definitely am open to these when I'm reading it, historically speaking. Mm. So... Um, uh, in, in chapter four, I say, what are we looking at in terms of what we can prove with reasonable historical certainty? And so I come to a couple of, uh, of uh, conclusions uh, and, and give uh, three facts pertaining to that. So it's a little different than what I did with Gary Habermas, where we identified five. Uh, here I looked at three, and my approach is just a, a little bit different than Gary's. Um, and then chapter five. Uh, I assess six hypotheses, uh, one being the resurrection hypothesis, and then I even split that in half, uh, resurrection as an object, uh, the appearances as objective visions. In other words, they were actual visions of a real living Jesus, but they were visions. And then the other would be a bodily resurrection. Hmm. So if you look at that, that'd be seven hypotheses. And then, but the other five would be what some skeptics have said on it. And um, so I come to the conclusion by weighing the hypotheses using the uh, criteria for the best explanation, which is what historians use. I come to the conclusion that Jesus bodily resurrection is by far the best historical explanation of the known historical facts. So the bottom line is what a, is a refined historiographical approach does is it reveals the strengths and the weaknesses of a particular hypothesis. I see. And, and so, like you said, in the end, you find that the, uh, that the hypothesis that does in fact fit the historical evidence is the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Yes. 
Yeah, that's awesome. Well, I definitely recommend that my listeners check that book out. Um, but I want to shift gears now a little bit and talk about uh, this controversy that I've, keep, that I've kept mentioning in the interview. Um, but I want to sort of set the stage first. And so I want to talk about the doctrine of inerrancy. Could you briefly define the doctrine of biblical inerrancy for us? Well, briefly, the doctrine of inerrancy says that the Bible has no errors. Okay. I don't know how you, you know, you, so the question would be is what is an actual error and mm-hmm. how much flexibility are you going to allow? Um, a lot of inerrantists like, uh, Norm Geisler, um, and, uh, and some of those who follow him are very inflexible. They won't allow for much flexibility at all. Um, and, but what do you do with something like, uh, Matthew and Luke where when they're reporting the Jesus temptations in the wilderness, uh, the second and third, the order of the second and third temptations are flip-flopped mm. in one of the Gospels. So uh, is that an error? Well, I, I don't think so. I don't even think uh, Dr. Geisler, those who uh, would take his view, would think so. So the question would be is how much flexibility are they allowed? Where do you draw the line on that? I don't think that's uh, easy at times. Sure. Um, and that's why I think that um, recognizing, as most New Testament scholars do today, that the Gospels are... Uh, are of the genre of Greco-Roman biography, by understanding the flexibilities inherent in Greco-Roman biography helps us to understand some of the differences we find in the Gospels. I'm finding it very profitable in my own study of it. Um, because the last thing I want to do is be accused of subjecting the Gospel text to a sort of hermeneutical waterboarding until they tell us what we want to hear. Uh, I, I'm not interested in that kind of strained harmonization attempts. I think it's much more fruitful to uh, to understand the Gospels in light of uh, ancient biography. Uh, there were no Jewish biographies. They didn't write uh, biographies of the rabbis. The closest thing we have to a Jewish biography is Josephus's autobiography. Other than that, all the rest of them are Greco-Roman. Um, now, one other thing I'd say in terms of the doctrine of biblical inerrancy, there are two major Protestant ways of defining inerrancy. Hmm. And the first is the Lausanne Covenant, which um, came about in, ni- I think, 1974. Uh, uh, John Stott and Billy Graham were signers of that. There were more than 2,300 signers of the Lausanne Covenant. Uh, evangelicals who sign it. It basically says that the Bible is inerrant in all that it teaches, um, all that it affirms. Uh, and then you have the Lausanne, or I'm sorry, the Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy, which is quite long and defined. And that came four years later in 1978 with just over 300, uh, uh, signers of that. Not all, not all of them were, were scholars. Not all of the Lausanne Covenant signers were scholars. Um, but uh, the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy is, uh, defines things a, a lot further. Hmm. So um, that's how it, um, you know, there's different ways of interpreting biblical inerrancy. Sure, I understand. Or but, defining it, I should say. Right, right. Well, but, but that having been said, do you think that the Chicago Statement um, w- does not allow for the kind of flexibility that, that you think you see in Scripture? Oh, I think it does allow for it. Yeah, I think uh, so, too. So um, I think this is uh, just a matter of Dr. Geisler's interpretation of it. Uh, obviously, as I pointed out in my paper that I delivered in San Francisco uh, a couple weeks ago at the uh, Evangelical Philosophical Society, um, you know, not all of the framers of the Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy is going to interpret it like uh, like Norm Geisler does. Sure. Uh, J.I. Packer would be one. So, yeah, I think it does allow that kind of flexibility. 
Well, let me give an example of um, the kind of flexibility that I think that uh, it has to allow for. I mean, take the book of Revelation. Uh, when it depicts a woman clothed with the sun standing on the moon, a dragon sweeping a third of the stars out of the sky, the sky uh, uh, pouring a river out of its mouth to sweep the woman away who is saved when the earth opens its mouth up to drink the river which the dragon spewed out of its mouth. I mean, uh, in order to hold the, to the doctrine of inerrancy as defined by the Chicago Statement, must one understand all of this language literally? No, I don't think so. Uh, not at all. In fact, my son-in-law, Nick Peters, just wrote a blog today at his uh, blog, Deeper Waters, where he shows that Jesus often spoke with language not meant to be interpreted literally, but, but which were, which they were interpreted literally by his hearers. And he just goes through the Gospel of John and shows number, uh, a number of these. So it, it seems that Many people in Jesus' day misinterpreted him by interpreting him literally rather than in a non-literal sense. But this is certainly a problem we have throughout the evangelical world. I mean, one of the reasons that I parted ways with SES and I wasn't dismissed from there, as uh, as Dr. Geisler has uh, asserted, um, you know, Gary Habermas can affirm this, but we had a call uh, uh, in which I uh, spoke with some of the uh, their faculty members, all of their, their four full-time faculty members, and one of the things that really turned me off was their uber-literalism in terms of their hermeneutic uh, of, or I should say their hermeneutic in, interpreted in an uber-literal sense. Uh, I asked them at one point this thing about, how do you guys interpret the dragon, the seven-headed red dragon whose tail will sweep a third of the stars out of the sky down to the earth? Uh, do you guys interpret this as a literal space monster? And one of the professors <laughs> said, yes. Yeah. And at that point, I thought, you know, I, I just, uh, we are not going to see eye to eye on this stuff. I mean, this is really kind of bizarre in my view and um, to, to interpret this literally. But when I saw that that was the case, I said, yeah, we're not going to see eye to eye on this. <laughs> and we just need to park ways. Right. So I thought it was in the best interest of, of SES and my best interest not to have that affiliation. Um, and so I, I, I put in an email, sent it to the dean and uh, the trust, one of the trustees at that point, Saying, I, I just think it's best that we both go our own ways, but I, I love you guys, uh, you know, and, and they've responded in the same way. They said, yeah, we just differ on this and our view of inerrancy, um, but, um, you know, we still consider you a friend of the school. And, in fact, they had me up there to speak at a conference. I would anticipate that uh, I'll be invited in the future, and I, I feel uh, I don't feel any animosity toward them whatsoever. I, I think that they're uh, just some great people up there. Sure, yeah. Well, I, one one thing that somebody might object to the example that we just gave of Revelation is that it's it's sort of uh, apocalyptic imagery from cover to cover. Um, but I want to give an example, if it's okay with you, of, of a place where I think that it is uh, imagery that's sandwiched between text intended to be taken literally. Uh, so for the example that I would give is Matthew 24, where Jesus first makes some straightforward statements about what's going to happen. You know, he talks about wars and famines and so forth. And then he, he becomes increasingly apocalyptic with his use of Old Testament imagery of the sun and moon darkening, coming on clouds, etc. And then he just goes right back to ordinary language, telling his disciples that their generation wouldn't pass away before those things took place. Now, I don't want to give my, my listeners the impression, without knowing that this is the case, that you share my preteristic interpretation of that text, but I did want to give an example of, of a place where I think we've got this kind of apocalyptic imagery sandwiched between ordinary language. Um, and, and this is sort of where the controversy begins, because in your book, you argued that there's one very small passage uh, all also in the book of Matthew, sandwiched between ordinary historical texts, but which might be best taken as apocalyptic, apocalyptic imagery of this sort. Can you tell us about that? 
Yeah, and I think you've put your finger on it a good, you know, what you've talked about with Matthew 24 and Jesus Olivet Discourse, um, you've got uh, literal things that Jesus reports are going to happen with things that I and you and many uh, uh, evangelical scholars uh, are going to interpret as apocalyptic symbols, um, such as the stars falling out of the sky and the sun and moon going dark. You know, um, he's pulling this from Isaiah that talks about a different day, uh, and he's applying that to the future. And it seems like he's not referring to these in a very literal sense, as many of us would would it, would uh, agree upon. Uh, perhaps we're wrong, but it does seem that uh, you know that he's mixing genres here. And you know, Chris, what else I found is when I was look at some of the more research I've been doing since writing the book on Matthew 27, the, the Matthew's race saints, is that you've got times in antiquity where, uh, and the Greco-Roman writings, where all these different portents, uh, such as you know darkness and comets and eclipses of the sun and apparitions seen walking around at dusk and, and things like this, uh, cows giving birth to lambs. Uh, you, you have these things that are commingled. You have these uh, poetic, apocalyptic, however you want to call them. I think for the Greco-Roman, we may best call them poetic. Uh, when we apply them to the Jewish writings, you may want to call them apocalyptic. It, but it's just hard to know what to call these exactly, to be honest with you. But um, let's just call them poetic. It, we can see that the Greco-Roman writers are commingling historical details with the poetic. And this is uh, demonstrable when it comes to things such as um, there are certain texts in which it reports there was an eclipse of the sun and a comet that occurred at uh, the death of, of someone. What we can show is that there was indeed a comet that happened during that time because it can be corroborated by Chinese reports. But we can also show astronomically that there was no eclipse of the sun viewable within the Roman Empire at that point. So this this demonstrates that there were uh, poetic uh, details that were commingled with the historical. And so why couldn't this happen with Matthew? Um, so that's what I'm just saying when we're talking about the, the raised saints. And you see that uh, apparitions walking around is common. It's part and parcel with a lot of these other portents that are reported by the Greco-Roman writers. Why couldn't Matthew be doing this? And if that's the case, then it's no different than us today saying uh, that the events of 9-11 were earth-shaking. Mm -hmm. um, and it would be wrong for someone, a historian a thousand years from now, who would say, yes, look at what happened on 9-11. Um, this must have been some kind of a, uh, an event of cosmic significance or divine uh, signs because not only did the buildings fall, but um, uh, there was earthquakes felt around the world. Or if we were to say, hey, if my grandmother heard that she'd roll over in her grave, well, we really <laughs> don't believe that the dead is going to roll over in her grave. Sure. It's just a figure of speech. But a historian writing a thousand, two thousand years from now hearing that, taking it um, – in a literal sense, I think we, well, they'd be making a mistake. Could it be that we're making the mistake, the same mistake by interpreting some of these things in a literal sense when they weren't ever intended for them to be understood in that sense by the authors of the gospels? Right. Absolutely. In your talk at EPS, you used a, a, a perfect example of one, have a cow. And of course, I might say I'm going to punch your lights out and I'm not talking about you know, breaking your light bulbs. And if I said it's raining cats and dogs outside, I'm not saying that you should get your kennels to catch the cats and dogs that are raining in the sky, you know? So, yeah. That's I, good. That's good. Yeah, I, I agree <laughs> That's with you. That's a real good one. 
<laughs> well, maybe you can work that into your next talk at EPS. Yeah, or something, I just but... might use that, Chris. That's, uh, <laughs> that's a real good one. Now, now, with respect to Matthew 27, where it says the tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. You're not the first prominent theologian or scholar to suggest that these verses in Matthew 27 probably ought to be understood in this apocalyptic or poetic way, were you? No, um, there have been a number of them who have. In fact, uh, William Lane Craig uh, posited this, uh, I think it was 1998, um, in the uh, book edited by Paul Copan, Will the Real Jesus Please Stand Up? And that's a debate between Dr. Craig and, and John Dominic Crossan. And, and Craig was responding to Robert Miller, the Jesus Seminar, his uh, contention that if we interpret the race saints in this way, that we'd have to interpret, we should interpret Jesus resurrection in this way, which he also did as apocalyptic imagery. And Craig responded, no, but he, uh, and he gave reasons why, just as I have. Um, but uh, he said that he felt, uh, thought that Dr. Miller's uh, proposal that Matthew's race saints should be interpreted in apocalyptic sense was very, was quite persuasive. And that uh, he said most evangelical scholars would probably interpret it the same way. Uh, Craig Blomberg, another member of the Evangelical Theological Society, uh, interprets the raised saints. He, he doesn't know how to interpret it, mm-hmm. whether as apocalyptic imagery, symbols, or as historical. Um, you got N.T. Wright, who doesn't know how. You've got Michael Bird of, the, of ETS, who says, yeah, they should be interpreted as apocalyptic symbols. So you've got a number of people, and that's just a few of them, uh, that would interpret them in this way. So by no means, oh, Raymond Brown, a great Catholic scholar in his book, The Death of the Messiah, he was another one. He's the one that uh, got me thinking about this to begin with. I don't know that there are allusions to Old Testament texts that Matthew is using here as Brown would contend. I, I think that if this is what Matthew is doing, and as I've said, I've come to the conclusion in the meantime that I, I don't know how to interpret it, mm. uh, to be honest with you. But if it is to be interpreted as apocalyptic symbols uh, or poetic device, I'm not sure that there is imagery, uh, Old Testament imagery in mind that Matthew may have had. I, I just don't know. But those are just a few of the scholars who would interpret it in that way. Yeah, sure. And, and you know, it's funny. Up until I began preparing for this interview, I took these as uh, historical statements of facts. And, you know, admittedly, I'm still inclined to do so. But particularly with my preteristic leanings um, with respect to Matthew 24, I'm really beginning to see what you've proposed uh, and these other scholars have proposed is, is very plausible. But one of the charges that's been leveled against you is that you've, and I'm going to quote somebody here, handed the enemies of the resurrection of Jesus Christ a powerful weapon. So, so why should we understand the surrounding text literally describing Jesus' historical crucifixion and Joseph of Arimathea and so forth? If we're going to understand these rising saints apocalyptically, how can you tell that some of it was intended to be taken literally and others, others perhaps not? Well, let me just, uh, yeah, I think there's two questions there. So let me address the thing first about handing the enemies of the resurrection of a powerful weapon. I think we need to be careful here when we do this. Remember, this is an academic book that's geared more toward an academic audience or, or students who are uh, serious students who are interested in this matter. And this is the kind of place where you propose some of these things and then you allow them to be debated by um, other scholars and, and a peer-reviewed kind of setting. Um, what we have to be careful is by uh, not to stifle this kind of research and exploring uh, with, with, with different ideas by saying, hey, by doing so, you could hand the, the, the enemies of, of Christianity a powerful weapon. I mean, this is kind of what Pharisees were, were claiming. Hey, you know, we, we don't want to um, 
go into this kind of sin. So let's build a hedge out here so that you can't cross that hedge. Um, and we will make this sinful in order to cross this hedge, whereas the boundary is actually a lot further in. You know what I'm saying? Mm. So this is what Jesus condemned the Pharisees for doing. And I want to make sure that we're not doing that within the evangelical world. I think we should be free if we're going to be serious scholars and 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 respectable out there. And I'm not saying we do it to be respectable, but I think evangelical scholars should be better than secular scholarship. And I think as it is in biblical studies right now, it is better than secular scholarship. And and we don't want to lose that place by people saying, hey, you can't even uh, explore this because you could be violating the doctrine of inerrancy. Hmm. Um, so that that's one thing I would want to say. Now, in terms of handing the enemies of, of Jesus uh, a powerful weapon, I don't think that I've done this because the reason we would interpret the... Res- you have to look at things on a case-by-case basis. Sure. And the reason we don't interpret the resurrection of Jesus in an apocalyptic or poetic sense is because we can trace back the teachings that Jesus was raised bodily and was meant to be interpreted literally to the Jerusalem apostles. And, you know, there's a way of doing it. I've said that in my debates of the last two years, and it's also in my book. But let me just say one thing quickly here, and that is uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 as you know, and as you mentioned a little bit earlier, he, he talks about uh, that Christ is the first fruits of those who are asleep. And if the dead aren't raised, then Christ isn't raised. And if Christ isn't raised, then our faith is worthless. So everything relies on the resurrection. And then he says, if Christ has not been raised, or if the dead aren't raised, then why did I fight the wild beast at Ephesus? Right. If the dead aren't raised, let's eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So the point is that Paul is saying, um, if if the dead aren't raised, then why don't we just go ahead and live life however we want, eat our ice cream today, do whatever we want, please ourselves today, because there's no tomorrow. We we must get our pleasures in today. There's no one to be accountable to. We're just going to die, and and that's it. That's the end of things. Um, and if so, if the dead aren't raised, though Christ has not been raised, because we can, we know we're going to be raised because of Jesus' resurrection. So in no uncertain terms, the apostle Paul was crystal clear in saying that Jesus' resurrection wasn't meant to be interpreted as a symbol or as a metaphor or as poetic or as apocalyptic symbol. Right. Jesus' resurrection from the dead is a event that occurred in history. We don't have anything like that when it comes to the raising of the dead saints in Matthew's gospel. Yeah, I agree. So, so just to sort of summarize what you've said, uh, if we were to look at this myopically without looking at the rest of Matthew and without looking at the rest of the New Testament, um, uh, testimony, then maybe we would have handed, uh, the enemies of the gospel, the enemies of the resurrection a weapon. Uh, but nobody's suggesting that we actually do it that way. We, we, we gotta look at the other New Testament evidence as well as the historical evidence. Is that, is that a fair way of putting it? Yeah, we have to look at both. And, um, uh, again, I think we have to be sensitive to these kinds of things, but if we're going to be truly serious scholars, we have to pursue where the evidence is pointing us. I mean, I know that Bill Craig is against, uh, he, he is not an open theist. He doesn't like the beliefs of open theism, but yet he uh, feels that the evidence at present points to, I believe it's an A theory of time, which is incompatible with, uh, or which is very compatible with open theism. So I pointed this out to him. I said, hey, you take an A 
theory of time right now, but you're against open theism. Isn't that kind of, a, aren't they in tension with one another? And he said, yes. Um, so right now I'm holding them in tension until I can resolve them later. And I think that that just shows that Bill Craig is a serious scholar who is going where the evidence leads. And as he continues to work through these things, he hopes to resolve them someday. And I think we just have to do those as serious scholars. Oh, absolutely. I, I think it's really uh, unwise to refrain from following the evidence because of where it might lead. We need to follow the evidence where it leads uh, and trust that God has revealed the truth in the scriptures wherever it's going to lead us to. So, yeah, I absolutely agree. Um, now, like I had said, I, I see this interpretation of Matthew 27 plausible. But some others don't see it the same way. And, and what you wrote about this passage in this, in your book sparked a controversy that's, you know, raging to this day. Tell us about how the controversy began. After you published the book last year, when did this start to become an issue? Well, it's interesting. I'll tell you, Chris, this totally caught me by surprise because, you know, I had talked about the raising of the dead saints being, uh, perhaps, uh, poetic or apocalyptic symbols. I'd been doing this for a couple of years. In fact, back in my 2006 debate at uh, UC Davis against a Muslim, it was raised in the audience, uh, the question about Matthew's race saints being mythical. And I said, no, I don't think they're mythical. I think this is um, a poetic device by Matthew. Um, I mean, that's been posted on the Internet since 2006. So I, I don't think, uh, I, you know, I've taught it in classes uh, as an, uh, a plausible option that we should consider. And nobody's ever raised any kind of objection to this. Uh, at the beginning of July, I think it was July 3rd, Norm Geisler sent me an email uh, saying he strongly objected to this. And um, I, I said to him, hey, listen, I'm leaving to go out of the country in two days. I'm going to be gone for a little over two weeks. When I get back, I'll attend to this. And, you know, I forgot when I got back because I had two debates for which I were preparing uh, that were a month and a half away that I hadn't started preparing for yet. And so I uh, emailed him back, uh, I think it was the first part of August, a couple days into August, and I apologized for taking so long to get back, and then just said, um, hey, I just can't give any attention to this right now, uh, given writing deadlines, two debates, uh, uh, the normal responsibilities that I had at the North American Mission Board, but I said, I'm planning on writing a journal article on this next year, and I promise to give serious consideration to your objections then. And he said, uh, well, that won't do. You have to drop whatever you need and, and deal with this now. It's important. And I just never responded to him at that point wow. uh, at the council of several others uh, who know him well and, and, and what he's done in the past. So um, he, he then emailed me and he says, well, I, I hope you don't mind, but I'm going to write a critique of your view. And I, I said, sure, go for it. Uh, that's all part of scholarship. But I felt that I thought he was going to do it in an academic, according to proper protocol, and re either read a paper or publish a journal article. I had no idea he was going to launch an Internet campaign against me. And um, so that's uh, that's when it all started and has just escalated since then. We'll talk about that escalation because, uh, you know, until, until your son-in-law, Nick Peters, who you mentioned, uh, earlier, contacted me about this, I hadn't, I didn't even know that this controversy had, had been going on. But now I look at, uh, Dr. Geisler's website and he's got this whole section on his homepage, uh, under the heading The Lacona Letters, where he's got links to three open letters he's written, responses to two, to two press articles, a couple of his own articles, and then, of course, his most recent response to your talk at EPS. Uh, after this initial interchange that you just described for us, how, what has happened since? Can you sketch out a timeline for us? Oh, let's see, a timeline. Well, you know, I, I don't know. He's He's got, I think, something along the lines of someone told me. Uh, I, I don't go to his website, but someone told me about eight letters that he's written or, 
or things that he's written about this and, and posted on the web. Um, he, uh, I, I've responded very little to it at the, at uh, the advice of my counselors on this, um, uh, only when I felt it was necessary, and even then as briefly as I could. Um, so, uh, you know, there was back in August, I, I posted a, a thing that reaffirmed my uh, belief in the inerrancy of the biblical text and um, had a number of signers, uh, evan- uh, evangelical scholars, many of them, uh, the, the elite evangelical scholars, some of the finest ones with the, the, the highest reputations, saying Mike has a, Mike is all, is certainly within the boundaries of the doctrine of inerrancy. And um, I mean, some really great scholars on that. Uh, I don't think Norm Geisler could get a single. I mean, I would challenge him to get a single uh, scholar of the type of caliber that uh, I had on there who are publishing regularly in uh, serious academic journals um, who have a, a very good reputation for their academic uh, work. Um, so, um, uh, and if he could get one, I mean, it'd be difficult, I think, but he, he wouldn't get uh, many at all. So, I mean, this is just, yeah, it's escalated. He has been going around and I discovered when I was in San Francisco that he has been calling seminary presidents and trying to get them to turn against me and weigh in against me on this matter. Wow. Um, I've had several speaking engagements canceled as a result because there are people going behind the scenes and uh, asking people to uninvite me from events. Um, uh, Dr. Geisler did that with Southern Evangelical Seminary. They refused to uninvite me. Um, and um, But I've been uh, uninvited from several of them, and he's made it very difficult for me. Sure. Yeah, I understand. Well, you know, it's interesting. I happen to think that it's legitimate uh, to ask the question uh, of whether or not the, pro- the interpretation you've um, proposed violates inerrancy. And, and I think it's legitimate also to defend one's belief that this interpretation does, in fact, violate, uh, violate inerrancy, so long as it's done in the right way. I mean, would you agree? Yeah, I think it's fine to, to, uh, to, uh, to make the accusation or the charge that, that uh, you know, the 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 interpretation is wrong or you're going against inerrancy but yeah i mean you don't go and publish this all on the web you do it in a professional way through the proper protocol and that would be to uh, give a paper uh, on the subject uh, in front of an academic audience or to uh, to uh, write a journal article um, so I, I think that's the proper way to do it rather than parading this uh, publicly um, so yeah that's but i don't have any problems with being challenged. I mean, scholars challenge scholars all the time, and that's fine. That's just part of the game. Sure. Yeah, and uh, I'm, I'm curious. What, you mentioned the the challenging publicly aspect of this. What, what do you? How do you think this has impacted the the debate itself over whether or not this is a good interpretation of this text? Um, how do you think it uh, uh, impacts our ability as as onlookers to objectively analyze e- uh, each side's case? And also, how do you think that this impacts? what the world thinks of the church when it looks in on a, on a, um, a disagreement like this? Well, to find the answer to that, read the blogs. And, you know, the blogs are, are very, very um, much uh, supportive of me out there. Um, I'm even getting emails from uh, skeptics, and uh, I've even heard from a Muslim. And, you know, they're saying that this really turns them off from evangelical scholarship because uh, they don't see that evangelical scholarship is true scholarship. 
Mm. But it's out there. It's not really uh, coming to the text and seeking to know what it says. It's just there to defend the inerrancy of Scripture. Um, and so that is, um, it has turned a lot of people off. It has turned evangelicals off. Um, I do think that over time, um, I don't know how much time, might be a, a short period of time, maybe a long period of time, but I think in the long run, this could actually work against Dr. Geisler, what he's trying to do and in, in terms of preserving a, what he believes is a high view of Scripture. Um, I think it's more of a naive view of Scripture, but he's viewing it as a, 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 um, a high view of Scripture. And that is, uh, and when I say naive, I'm not saying inerrancy is a naive view. I'm saying his uh, ultra uber literal interpretation of it is right. is naive. Uh, but I think it could work against him because people might be turned off by this and equate the doctrine of inerrancy with an uber literal hermeneutic and just say, hey, we don't need this. This right. is naive. We don't need it. Let's jettison it. And all of a sudden, people are just giving up inerrancy. Um, so I, I think uh, it could actually work against what he's wanting to do with it. Yeah, I think that you're right. You know, I'm a big fan of uh, Greg Kokel and his uh, ministry, Stand to Reason. Um, it was funny, I, when I listened to your talk at EPS, I was like, hey, I, that, the, when, when he stood up and answer, uh, asked a question, I said, hey, that's Greg Kokel. Anyway, in, in the most recent episode uh, of his show, a caller asked him about this controversy, and Greg made it pretty clear that uh, that he didn't think that what you've suggested in any way uh, calls into question your commitment to uh, to full inerrancy. Is there anybody else uh, you're comfortable naming who, even if they don't share your view of this passage, have openly uh, supported you? And defended you from the charges of your most vocal critics. Yeah, I'd say um, uh, well, Paul Copan, uh, Dan Wallace. They both produced uh, while I was out there in San Francisco. Uh, I when I after I'd learned that uh, Dr. Geiser was uh, going around to, and contacting seminary presidents uh, to turn them against me. I um, EPS was over. But there were a few of the scholars who were still around that I bumped into, and so I asked them if they just do a short video on their, you know, what they thought about the controversy, and I posted them on, on uh, YouTube. So, um, uh, so that, it's on my YouTube channel, but they're on there, and you know, they weighed in on the controversy, and there have been some others, some very prominent evangelical scholars, um, but um, I, I don't know that I'm free to mention their names at this point. Yeah, I understand. Why is that? Do you mind, do you mind saying on the air why that is? Well, uh, there'd be a couple reasons. Uh, one would be is they just don't want to get involved in the, the public nature of the controversy. Um, uh, that would be just a few of them, but, uh, most of them because they fear for their jobs yeah. because they're either working at a Southern Baptist. Well, they, they would be working at a Southern Baptist seminary. Um, I've, I have a number of professors at Southern Baptist seminaries who have said that they uh, uh, totally support me on this, but they don't dare come out um, and mention it because they would fear for their jobs. Those who did come out publicly are, are getting somewhat persecuted for that at, at, at the moment. Yeah, that's a real shame. As we begin to wrap up, if there was anything that you could say to people like Geisler and others who've, who've called into question uh, your commitment to inerrancy in the, un in the unlikely event that any of those people are listening, what would you say to them on a personal level right now? Well, I'd say I love them. I respect their view. I, I view this controversy as somewhat uh, similar to what Paul experienced with uh, uh, James and, and Peter. And I, I'm not trying to equate any of us with any of the apostles. And, but what you had, you had the men of James and, and James, as we know, was kind of, 
uh, leaning toward the side of the law. And then you had Paul, who was, uh, uh, you know, a, a little more flexible, saw some more liberties and things. And, uh, you know, they, they butted heads on these. Uh, James wanted things to be conformed more to the law. Paul said, no, we've got liberties in this area. And, and so they, uh, they butted heads on this. But you learn to, to work through these uh, disagreements and these difficulties. You don't attack one another. Um, you don't launch public campaigns against them. You discuss this in a brotherly type manner. And sometimes it could get heated. That's okay. Um, but we want to be careful, very careful, uh, that we don't do anything that causes division in the body of Christ, because that is something that the Lord certainly doesn't want. Um, I'd also say that we need to, to, to look at doctrines to see, you know, as I said, my EPS paper, determine what are essential or fundamental doctrines. And I personally, I don't think that inerrancy is a fundamental doctrine. Um, it's not one that you have to believe in order to be a Christian. It's something that even evangelicals can disagree on. Again, I affirm inerrancy, but I know several evangelicals who uh, who do not believe in inerrancy, and I still consider them dear brothers. Yeah. Um, so we have to focus on what are the fundamentals, and uh, if a person agrees on all the fundamentals, that person is a brother that you can live with in harmony. Um, it, it's when they disagree with the fundamentals, and even as I pointed out in my paper, as you remembered, uh, or in the Q&A, B.B. Warfield. Uh, Mr. Inerrancy himself uh, acknowledged that uh, biblical inerrancy was not one of the fundamentals of the faith, and it's the last thing that comes in. And so I, I think we have to be careful not to to launch a war because someone disagrees on a non-essential issue. Yeah, I think that's fair. Well, I've really appreciated your time, and uh, even if in the end you and I don't uh, fall onto the same side of this debate over, over Matthew 27, I really don't think that the charges leveled against you are warranted. Uh, so as, as little as it counts for, you've got my support. Uh, well, thank you, Chris. You're very welcome. Is there any sort of uh, parting message that you'd like to leave the rest of us with, uh, something that maybe you hope sticks in, in my listeners and my minds more than anything else that we've talked about today? Um. Uh, yeah, we just have to learn to, to be uh, tolerant of one another, love one another, live in unity as brothers and sisters in Christ. And again, let's focus on uh, not battles from within on non-essential issues. Let, let's go out and share the gospel and defend the gospel in a loving, respectful way with its integrity uh, to non-believers. The enemy is not within. Um, and so let's learn to live in unity on these non-essentials. Okay. In terms of what I'm going to be doing uh, in the future with my ministry, uh, people can learn more about that uh, by going to my website, risenjesus.com. Bill and Jan Craig have been uh, encouraging me since last December to uh, develop a ministry that is much like Bill's. Uh, Bill has uh, have become a dear friend over these last several years. I am blessed as can be to have mentors like Bill and, 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 he, and especially Gary Habermas, who has become my best friend in life. And... Um, but anyway, I'm going to be trying to build a, a ministry like Bill's. And so if anybody is uh, interested in becoming, uh, joining our support team, we need you. And uh, if you go to our website, that uh, will we'll tell you how to do that. Great. Thanks a lot. Yeah, risenjesus.com. I definitely recommend my listeners check it out. And just again, thanks so much for your time, Mike. Thank you, Chris. Hey, I hope you enjoyed the interview as much as I did, and I hope that you'll join me in supporting Mike Lacona and defending him from the charges leveled against him by his critics. Uh, join me in two weeks for my debate on annihilationism. Until then.